So your your company with the healthcare the healthcare business resources, you've been doing that for a couple of years, mm-hmm. but that's going public. So that's a whole nother level of entrepreneurship where you're going from just private startup, private turnaround, private buy of a successful company. Now you're dealing with public. How does how does that how does that differ from your private stuff? Well, it's go big or go home, right? Like <laughs> play big game. You just said that, right? You got to keep pushing the envelope. You know, the more success you have, the more success you want, and not in a bad way. Not in like oh a trap. Like oh, I want a house now. I need to have a bigger house now. I got to have a bigger house. I got to buy a boat. Okay, now I need a bigger boat. That's not that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your ability to contribute and help people and make a positive impact in other people's lives increases as your success increases. Period. In today's ultra-competitive business world, being a successful entrepreneur or business owner can be very challenging. Fortunately, contemporary times have blessed us with resources for tackling those challenges and getting us to success more quickly than we could have imagined. Welcome to The Root of All Success with the real Jason Duncan, a podcast that explores how the world's most powerful entrepreneurs grow incredible companies. This podcast looks at the five keys to unlocking success as an entrepreneur. A successful educator turned entrepreneur, Jason's mission is to use his gifts of teaching and leadership to help others get the results they want out of life. Join Jason every week and learn the keys to grow a truly successful business. Well, hey there, I'm the real Jason Duncan. Thank you for tuning in to the Root of All Success today. And as the intro told you, I interview some super successful entrepreneurs every single week on the show. I want to thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in on whatever podcast player you're listening in on. We appreciate you doing that. If you don't mind subscribing and leaving us a five-star review, I would very, very much appreciate that. And if you don't think it's worthy of a five-star review, send me an email and let's talk before you leave a four-star because <laughs> I want to know what I could do to make the show better for you. And if you haven't watched this on YouTube, you really should go over to YouTube and watch this because it's we, we filmed this live at the Standard of the Smith House in Nashville, Tennessee. We're sitting right here in the, the room we affectionately all refer to as Josh's office, even though it's not necessarily an active office, but it's this old 18,000 square foot antebellum home, still the, lar- the, the largest and last standing antebellum home here in downtown Nashville. It's 18,000 square feet of Southern sophistication and style. It's one of the greatest steakhouses in the, in the country. It's one of the top five cigar bars in the country. It's a private club as well. I'm privileged to be a member. And uh, Joshua Sterling Smith is the owner and proprietor of the place. And we are thankful that he allows us to use his location for our studio to do these shows every single week. But again, thank you to C-Suite Radio Network for the syndication. We're happy to be on their part of their network and going out through all of the podcast players and YouTube is at youtube.com slash C for channel slash The Real Jason Duncan. If you go there, you can subscribe to the podcast and any of the other videos that I put out there, and you can see all the wonderful guests that I'm talking to and see the room that we're in because it really is a phenomenal thing. This is it's such a beautiful house. If you ever come to Nashville, please look me up. Find me on Instagram or LinkedIn at The Real Jason Duncan, and let's connect. Love to bring you in. If you smoke cigars, maybe we sit down and have a cigar or a glass of bourbon or something and, and just get to know each other. So I appreciate you listening. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it very much. Our uh, episode sponsor for today is a company called 8Bend Marketing. That's the number 8, B-E-N-D, Marketing. And the reason they're the episode sponsor is because I found these guys quite actually by accident. But as you know, as an entrepreneur and a business owner, you waste a lot of money in marketing. And a lot of these marketing companies simply don't know what they're doing, or they kind of know what they're doing, but not enough to justify the expense. So I work with and coach entrepreneurs and companies all over the world, and a lot of times they ask me questions about how, how do I do better marketing? And I connect them with people that I know because that's not necessarily the thing that I do. Well, I had one client, it's, I guess it was last year sometime, that came to me and showed me their new marketing collateral and the story that they had, that the marketing company had put together. And I was so blown away by it. It was so clear, so concise, so on point and, and resonated with me. I thought, who is this? Who's the company that did it? And they, he told me it was 8Bend Marketing. 
Eight Ben is owned by Josh Davis. They're in Chattanooga, Tennessee. They do work all over the country, and they actually are one of the top story brand marketing firms in the country. So if you know story brand Donald Miller, they're one of the top firms that do that story brand kind of setup to get your messaging right. So I met Josh, actually hired him to do some story brand stuff from one of my companies, and I asked them if they would be interested in sponsoring one of our episodes. And today, they are the sponsor. So they've got a special step-by-step -step program that they use specifically for small business owners to go through the story brand process to give them everything they need to know about setting up that story. So we're very appreciative of 8Bend sponsoring today's episode. And if you want a special offer for them, you can go to 8Bend.Marketing. That's 8, the number 8, B-E-N-D dot marketing slash root as in root of all success and at that link there's a special gift and a special service opportunity for you as a listener of the podcast so go to 8bend.marketing slash root so that you can make sure you get your messaging clear all right uh, let's dispense with all of that stuff let's get into today's guest so today's guest is a guy that I met, um, I guess it was a few years ago through a mutual friend who actually was another guest on the show previously. And uh, we met and uh, just kind of knew each other on the periphery of Nashville, just being in the business community, the entrepreneur community. And then his wife, who was a former uh, guest on the show, she was episode number two, came on the show. And this guy is also a very powerful and successful entrepreneur in his own right. And we're going to actually talk to him today about what it's like being a super successful entrepreneur with another person in the same house, but in different different businesses. And so a lot of times entrepreneurs, when you, when you find one successful entrepreneur and a husband or wife couple... Uh, they're either in the same business or they're doing things similar or one's not an entrepreneur at all, like my wife. But this couple, this power couple here in Nashville, have their own super successful entrepreneurial journeys that we're going to talk about. He started out as a private equity investor, and uh, he's now the CEO of a public company, he's a serial entrepreneur, he got a lot of things going on. He actually grew up in San Francisco. His dad was a real estate attorney. His mom was a commercial real estate broker. He went to USC and he studied and graduated with a degree in international relations and uh, spent his first part of his career in real estate and investment. And then he, his last job before he really got his entrepreneurial career going was working for the Duke of Westminster <laughs> in a private equity in real estate, which is kind of interesting. I've never had anybody work for a Duke before. Um, in late 07, he quit that lucrative job in San Francisco to start a financial literacy and trading company called Dollar Camp. And what he, what he does with that is he teaches financial literacy to people and because he saw there was an opportunity and a need for that. And I, I, I resonate with that, and I'm sure you do too, is that financial literacy is one thing missing from so many entrepreneurs, which why, is why I think it should be part of every entrepreneur's education as you're growing up as an entrepreneur learning financial literacy. Well, it was a tough thing, like most entrepreneurs suffered through that and uh, ended up landing Paul Mitchell as a client. And over 10 years later, they've, uh, they've trained over 65,000 hairdressers on financial literacy, student loan management, how to handle all those things. And he's very proud of that. He ended up in, in uh, 2012, I think it was, he uh, pull, pulled in another guy to run day-to-day -day operations, ended up moving to Nashville and started purchasing turnaround companies, did a metal building construction company, turned that around. And uh, his recent project is, and what we're going to talk about today, is a healthcare acquisition company, that that's the one that's going public. And I'm going to let him tell you all the details about that. But his wife, Meg Epstein, was, uh, as I said earlier, was episode number two, one of the more popular episodes I've had on the Root of All Success. And they are indeed an entrepreneur power couple here at Nashville. So without any further ado, I want to introduce our guest for today, Mr. Stephen Epstein. Stephen? Thank you for being there, man. Thank you, Jason. That is the best introduction I've ever had, man. And you're hired. You can come and introduce me any day. Well, it's uh, it's easy when you've got good assistants who take time to write the notes <laughs> and give that to you. So, now I want to start. I want to start here because there are there are several power couples in Nashville and different things. There's real estate power couples. There's banking power couples. And, and but but in the entrepreneur space, I can't think of another one where there's these two people who are killing it in the entrepreneur space like the Epsteins are. Well, so that's, what's, <laughs> that's very kind. That's very kind. But what's it like? I mean, you and you and Meg are, you know, living in the same house, running, you know, multi-million dollar companies, but in separate, kind of separate worlds. How, what's that like? You know, it's, I, I'd be lying if I said it was easy. Uh, all success comes with, you know, some sacrifice and the ups and downs. But what's really cool is that 
you know, if Meg's having a great day um, and something great's happening, I can, you know, celebrate with her and root her on and participate in that because it's her success is my success and my success is her success. So that's really exciting is when things are going great for her, it's like things are going great for me too. Um, and vice versa, right? I can, I can, you know, share my wins and victories. Now, the opposite's also true, which is that if you have a really hard week, mm -hmm. a deal blows up, something goes wrong, a person quits, I mean, all the things and problems and nightmares and headaches of, of doing deals and, you know, trying to make things happen, it's a roller coaster, man. And you got two people riding a roller coaster side by side, you know, one's up, one's down, the others, you know, it's like you're both down at the same time, you're both up at the same time, one's down, one's up. It's it's an adventure, man. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> no. Well, entrepreneurship is not for sissies. And you've got two entrepreneurs in the same house doing two different ventures that are wildly successful. But you guys do... You do a lot of adventure stuff anyway. Like you like to do kite surfing and hiking. She likes reading massages and all that kind of stuff. But you guys recently went out or maybe it was last year on a sailing trip and you guys stay pretty busy in business, but you also play hard as well, right? Yeah, I think that's important. You know, you can't just grind endlessly, you know, without, because it's diminishing returns, right? You, you lose, you lose the ability to stay focused and engaged and excited and, and then you just become not fun to be around also at a certain point. So I like to go really hard for like a stretch of 30 days, like, you know, flat out and then take, you know, three, four, five, six, seven days off. Just try to unplug, recharge. Uh, but yeah, Meg and I love going sailing. We try to do it once or twice a year, going on a sailing trip. We've been to Tahiti. We've been to uh, Belize. We've been to Italy. We've been to the BVIs. We, we, it's our thing. We love it. Yeah, and you guys are so busy. You part part of your story is you guys haven't had kids yet, but you're interested in adopting children too. So I think that's a very interesting part of your story. Yeah, I think we're we're really committed to obviously giving back, and that's a big part of our philosophy and what motivates us. I think to be successful is to donate, contribute, to help those that are, don't have as much, you know, good fortune as we've had. Uh, education, family, you know love and all those things that we probably take for granted um so and plus given how busy we are like we have not prioritized having kids we've purposely delayed that uh partly because we want to adopt and partly because careers just don't allow for you know for the space so you know life comes with sacrifices but i think it's a blessing to to be able to be in a position where you can adopt kids and and make that part of your journey and and not have it be a sacrifice, right? Yeah. Well, it's a it's a great. I think that's a, I think that's a beautiful part of your story. Because I know when Meg was on, we I, I don't remember if we talked about it on the show, but I remember that being part of the discussion. And I thought how interesting that was that you guys made a conscious decision as, hey, we've got careers and and, and not traditional careers, but we've got careers as entrepreneurs that we're growing, and we're gonna wait. We're gonna wait and have children. Where my story is completely the opposite. I started early. I had. I think my son was born when I was 25. And so we had kids pretty early, but our kids are grown now. Like my son turns 21 uh, this, this year and my daughter turns 19 this year and we're kind of halfway empty nesters. He's moved out, she's still in the house, but she's in college. But so, but my entrepreneurial career is, is speeding up where yours jetted early and you're later going to have kids where we had ours early. And so our, we're on opposite ends of that whole kid thing, right? Yeah, well, I think there's, those are probably the two best ways to do it. I mean, just this is just my opinion, right? Um, from the guy who hasn't had kids. <laughs> but no, I think doing it really early and you just, you get it going when you know you're in the early part of your career and you're just you're learning and you're not making much money and you just you don't care because you're you're young and you're just gonna figure it out. Yeah. Or you do it later where you if you're gonna be an entrepreneur, right? But to do it like mid career or like you know, start having kids when you're 30 instead of me when I'm 40. Um, I think it's challenging. I mean, it's it's hard to be a good parent and get a business off the ground. You'd be you'd be lying to yourself if you thought that you could do a great job at both. Yeah. Trying to be an entrepreneur, it's hard. 
Well, it is hard. I mean, we, we said entrepreneurs not for sissies. That, that refers to the business side, but it also, there's this family dynamic that you've got to manage that. And I'm in, a, I'm in a relationship with my wife, we've been married 26 years, where she is not an entrepreneur, doesn't have any interest in it whatsoever. So I'm kind of the entrepreneur doing my own thing. But that was tough enough, like building businesses and trying to see the successes and failures. And you guys are, and I had kids, you guys are, you know, at your age and building super successful business and making that decision. I commend you for it. I think it's great that you've made a conscious decision and the fact that you're going to adopt where these kids would not have the opportunities otherwise. I think that, I, I commend you for that. I think you and Meg are doing something special there. Thanks, Jason. I really appreciate that. So you got your start in entrepreneurship um, in kind of the real estate and investment space in San Francisco, right? So tell us a little bit how you got started in that. Yeah, um, I went to USC. I was lucky that um, I had some friends that uh, were pretty well connected in the real estate market in in uh, Los Angeles. And I worked for a student housing developer right out of college, my first job. They worked me like 80 hours a week for $32,000 a year and just grinded me so hard you wouldn't even believe it. Working out of the basement of a half you know renovated apartment building. But I mean, it was... It was awesome. I learned so much. Um, worked for some guys that were ultra successful guys. One is probably a billionaire now, if not uh, close to it. Um, and it was a real formative experience. I really enjoyed it. I got way more responsibility than I ever should have been given because the guys I was working <laughs> for were really young. So they gave me like a whole project, like a $30 million project to manage on my own. And I just... I thought I could do it. I didn't. I didn't think. Oh, I'm only 24 years old. I can't do this. It was like, yeah, okay, I can do this. And then you figure it out, you know. So, I think. I think the key to like your early career should be, you know, just learning as much as you can. Not trying to get rich or anything. Like in your 20s, just learn, have good experiences, and develop good habits and stuff. You know. Well, your your degree was in uh, business and international. Yeah, I had an international relations and I studied some business and a little bit of finance in school, but I kind of picked it, most of it up on the job. Yeah. So how much is uh, just out of curiosity, how much do you f consider your college experience contributing to your success as an entrepreneur? Uh, not that much. Yeah. You know, I mean, if I'd had to do it all over again, I'd have taken the you know, all the money that was spent on my education and probably just invested it in starting a business. But it's hard to tell, you know, looking back, like what would have happened if you'd have done something differently. But, you know, going to a state school or whatever for college is a thing I definitely, you know, advise young people to do. But to go to a private school and take on a ton of debt, especially how much this stuff costs today, you're, you're insane if you do that, Yeah, I think. I, I, Elon I, Musk says he, he thinks it's a terrible idea too and so does you know Shamath Papatia and a bunch of these really smart guys are just saying what are people doing you know I mean you go and get $250,000 in debt and you get a $35,000 job I mean <laughs> that's not a good idea no, it's not a good investment it's not a good return and I, I think that I think we're seeing a shift and I would be interested in your perspective we, we don't talk about this on the show a lot but but I think there's this shift when I, when I, I'm 46, so you're, you're four, are you 40? I'm 40, yeah. So, you, so we're not that far apart in age. I know when I was growing up, man, it was go to college, go to college, go to college. And my, my brother and I were the first two in our family to go to college. Uh, he actually has his doctorate now and I worked on my doctorate. I didn't finish it, but, but we were the first two college educated. Everybody would push college, 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 college. Well, today it seems like there's this shift that there's a lot of pushback on this college thing. And it's like, if you're not going to get a specific license that is required to do what you got to do, probably college is not the thing. What, what's your perspective on that? Totally agree. I mean, we've done a lot of work uh, with Paul Mitchell schools um, through our financial literacy company, Dollar Camp. And for $20,000, you can go there, get your student loan to do that, get a job, get some actual skills. Yeah, you leave with $18,000, $20,000 in debt, but you have a career that you can make you know, thirty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year in within a couple of years. I mean, that's such a better investment. And I think trade schools are not, you know, widely enough accepted. Maybe people still look down at it or whatever. But for a young person who doesn't want to be an entrepreneur, it's a great route. You know, or even somebody who does. Yeah. Well, I know my son did uh, did trade school. He went to he he graduated high school a little bit early. 
ended up going into uh, trade school, did welding, got a welding diploma. And at, like we were, were very proud of him that he made that choice because it was either college, military, or you got to get a full-time job. And he chose trade school. And as a trades, he, he got a welding diploma. But when he got done, he's like, ah, I don't think I want to weld. <laughs> so I think, I think the trade schools, I, I believe in them conceptually. I think that they're probably still some more years of developing, picking the right route. Because you still spend time and money to go to a trade school. And if you spend that time and money and you end up not doing it, that also is a waste, even though you're only wasting four thousand, not forty thousand. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's still, still something. So I, I'm, I thank you for taking that little stroll down the college thing because <laughs> I'm, I'm always interested for those who did go to a prestigious school like you did, like how much did that contribute? And I, most people say exactly what you said. Yeah, uh, being an entrepreneur is its own thing. You know, if you're going to go work in finance somewhere, or you're going to go, you know, work go the corporate route. Then obviously the degree matters and the pedigree matters, but entrepreneurs are all about what results you can create in the economy using your creativity and ingenuity and your skills and other people's resources and that does not require a degree period so when you moved to nashville that is that is that when you really got into flipping and and doing the not just real estate but also businesses was that when that kind of started tell tell me about that yeah so i had i had de i had developed some success with Dollar Camp, which gave me my kind of freedom of time, right? I, I had a good team helping me. I had income coming in every month, and that allowed me to do more entrepreneurial things, which didn't require, you know, oh, I got to worry about how I'm going to pay my bills this month, right? And I always kept my overhead really low, um, and we still today keep our overhead really low relative to our income, and I think that's something that entrepreneurs learn if they've been in the game a long time. I mean, I've been an entrepreneur since 2007. It's, you know, 2021. That's 14 years. It's a, long, it's a lifetime yeah. of pain and suffering, right? <laughs> uh, Almost a whole generation. Yeah, but so but so I think, you know, that's that's important, right? Um, keeping keeping your overhead low and then just being, being focused and, uh, yeah. So when did you... You, you started purchasing companies and turning them around as opposed to starting companies at some point in your journey. What, what was the shift there? Yeah, so I, I had a lot of trouble starting my first company, Dollar Camp. I mean, it is tough when you start something from scratch. As any entrepreneur will tell you, man, it is a lot of work. And I think I had the idea or the epiphany that maybe it's easier to take a company that's already kind of maybe not doing that well but there's already something going and spend the exact same number of hours and instead kind of turn it around, right? You're starting with something as opposed to literally starting from scratch and having to come up with a logo and a design and, a, and try to find clients and things. like. So I, I after about four or five years, so from 07 to 2012, I had you know enough of starting a business from scratch and said, I want to try buying businesses and growing them or turning them around. First one was a failed business that I basically bought this construction company for the cost of the equipment and the machinery, you know, um, and spent, you know, two and a half years of real hard work turning it around. And now it's, you know, it's a, not a huge company, but we're on, you know, we're on a $5 million run rate Right now, we'll probably do 10 million next year. We could easily do 20 million in revenue the following year. I mean, the company's been doubling every year for the last three years, and we're just getting started. So let's talk about that. So when you bought this company, you know, obviously that that's that's a common thing where companies are going down, and somebody comes and just buys the equipment. How much time did it take from you to be like day-to-day -day operations to get that construction company turned? So initially, the first year, it took an enormous amount of time. I was really involved. But I could afford to hire people and subsidize the turning around of the company because I had income coming in from other places. So that's kind of the route that we went. Um, brought in a team. I, I would recommend people buy a successful company, pay more. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, so I'm making, the, I'm making the progression, right? From starting it, up, starting it from scratch, which is the hardest, Turning something around, which is broken and dying, second hardest. Buying something that's already successful and making it better. This is the, the spectrum that I've been traveling, and I'm happier and happier as I move away from start, starting stuff from scratch. Yeah, so startups are difficult. Uh, I, I, I've started up. 
I think uh, I, I've never bought, I have, to, to this day, I've not bought an existing company. So all the 12 companies that I've had a part of uh, ownership, I've started every one of those. And they, they all have different versions of hard, but the one, you know, they're all difficult. Yeah. They're all difficult. So you've gone through the startup. Then you bought, uh, bought a turnaround opportunity, which is what is commonly referred to as I'm going to come in and turn this company around. And you spent that first full 12 months really digging in, but you had capital to subsidize that. I love that you said that because I think entrepreneurs think, oh, well, all I got to do is go pay 10 grand to buy this equipment from this construction company and I'm, I'm golden. No, <laughs> that's going to take no. a lot more than just the cost of the equipment to make that happen. Yeah, we, we put about a quarter million dollars into that company over the course of a little over two years, Yeah, uh, which we cash flowed. But what was really cool because we could expense that right? We were, we we're operating losses. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, you buy a company, the money that you spend to buy a successful company can't be expensed. It could be, some of it could be depreciated over a number of years. But in this situation, because we're bankrolling the losses of this company, we were able to capture all those losses and use them to offset gains in other areas. Meanwhile, over time, we're building up a successful business. that's actually worth a ton of equity. And we got to expense every dollar that was spent creating that company. So that's what's really cool about a startup and a turnaround is you get you get to use those those losses, right? That's right. Um, so anyway, just a little. I'm a tax nerd. I love like getting into the details on how do you optimize for taxes and how do you you know move money between companies in a legal and ethical way to be able to you know take advantage of these things. So uh, let's talk about that. I want I want, <laughs> I want to go from I want to talk about your startup to turnaround to successful purchase. I want to do I did, that. I did two turnarounds. We did a granite and stone business. The, yeah, that Cincinnati, was the other one. Which is another turnaround. And thank God I had good, two good partners on that. Um, a lady named Angela and uh, my buddy Dan who stepped in. Because I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't very good at operations. Um, I'm much better on the front end of a deal. Figuring stuff out. Putting the team in place. Getting it financed. Figuring out the loan. Raising the equity finding the team, putting the guys in the right place, you know, redoing the marketing on the front end. That's my sweet spot. Mm -hmm. If I could just keep doing that, I'm really successful. But when I start to get into operations, I'm less successful. So I think, I mean, to, to pre, I guess, uh, answer your question, it's, you know, it's important you know what you're good at as an entrepreneur because an entrepreneur has a tendency to try to wear all the hats and you're just not going to be good at all the hats. Yeah. So if you don't have money, to hire somebody to be to, to take on the things that you're not good at, you better have a partner who's really good at that. Because if you try to do it all yourself and keep all the equity, your chances of success, I think, are pretty low. Yeah. Well, there's there's three levels of that. There's 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 appropriate delegation, which is what you were able to do. You delegated out opportunities and and responsibilities to other people, and that's what made you successful. A lot of entrepreneurs do the second level of that, which is abdication, where they they completely give up the responsibility to somebody else and there it's failure spelled different way. And then the third way is they confiscate, which is what you were just explaining is they confiscate all the roles themselves and say, I can do it better than everybody. Well, the answer, the, the truth in that is that you probably can, if you isolate that one job, you could probably do that better than everybody, but you can't do 10 jobs better than 10 people could do 10 jobs. And I love that you said that because entrepreneurs who are listening need to understand that if you're in that early startup stage, if you want to scale, you've got to get yourself out of the way. You, you will be your biggest obstacle, don't you think? Completely agree. I think the idea that you got to do it all yourself is, is silly and it comes from our sort of schooling where you got to take your tests by yourself, you got to study by yourself, you got to do your projects by yourself and everybody's you know, conditioned to become a rugged individual, but it's only teamwork and cooperation and, you know, partnerships that create success. So let's go back to that tax, the tax thing. And I love, I, I'm glad that you said that because I, well, I don't talk about this a lot on the show, but the concept that you talked about with maximizing tax advantage in a legal and ethical way, and I want to make sure everybody hears me, is that if to maximize that can put dozens of thousands of dollars at the minimum to potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars back in your revenue, uh, back in your profitability rather, if you just know what you're doing with taxes. So how did you figure that out? Like what was your preparation for that? So I'm a finance guy. Uh, I've always been attracted to that. I mean, I started a financial literacy company. I was in finance my, my career. I've always kind of had a leaning towards that and affinity for that. So for me, you know, if, if something is a 30 to 40% expense at the end of the year for you, 
I get pretty interested and curious about what's, what is this expense about? What do I have to know about this to pay less of it? I, I think there's an attitude of let's just make more money and just pay the tax, which is cool and fine, but literally tax is your largest expense normally when you start to be successful. Literally, more than payroll, more than anything, especially in your personal balance sheet. So, or personal P&L rather. Um, so I think entrepreneurs have a responsibility to get educated on it. And that could just mean finding a good CPA who's willing to, to walk you through stuff and take the time to, um, to explain things if you don't understand it. But you do need to understand the, the concepts, right? The tax code is written, I think, as a series of incentives for business owners. That's all it is. It's do this, don't do that. Spend money on this, don't spend money on that. And you may agree with it, you may think it's stupid, you may like it, but it is what it is. And if you play by the rules that the government wants you to spend money on, legally you can pay very little tax. So, you know, for our income, you know, we we pay a very small amount of tax, but we also we do it all legally. It's all vetted by our CPA. We don't cheat. We don't write things off. We shouldn't be writing off. Um, but, you know, the, the, the biggest thing is that I think it's just understanding the tax code and how you can leverage that. Uh, but, you know, you can't spend all your money on, you know, vacations and, and, and yachts if you want to, you know, if you want to maximize your tax. But I guess you even could because you could buy a yacht, put it in charter, and write it off in the year you buy it. So, you know, anything's possible. What's the coolest what's the coolest tax advantage story that you can think of off the top of your head that would be an interesting legal ethical way for an entrepreneur who's listening to go, ooh, I didn't think about I didn't think about that. I should do something like that. That I've done or that yeah, I've seen. Well, either. Either one. I'd say there's a couple. I mean, we created so if you're in technology, if you're in the technology space, there's research and development credits uh, that you can use right, to basically get money from the government. And it's totally legal. Anybody with a business that's engineering-based or technology-based generally applies for it if their technology development's happening in the United States. So we actually set up a little company, uh, taxcreditexpert.com, uh, to help people get R&D credits because we... Really? Yeah, we... This is just a little side business that we created for our healthcare company because we're working with so many healthcare companies and we come in contact with people and we're like, hey, are you using the R&D credit? And they're like, no. We're like, we'll help you with that. So that's one. Um, you know, depreciation is a great thing. If you can buy your own office space, I mean, you're not going to do that at the beginning. But if you can buy, like uh, Meg is buying an office building for CA South and we're buying an old building and renovating it, which means you can expense a lot of the, the renovations that you make through a cost segregation study, which your CPA can help you with. There's so many There's so many things. You just have to get educated on it. It's like well, anything. Well, you're, so you're mentioning a lot of stuff. The R&D tax credits, I have a friend who has a company that does that in California. Yeah. And, and so I'm familiar with it. And we ran one of my companies through it, and there was nothing. We had nothing to qualify. <laughs> but we did run it through there because they do it for free, and if they find it, they do a capture. So you could do that essentially for free if you know who to talk to. Maybe you go to, what's your website again on that? Tax credit expert. There you go. So go, go see that. The other thing you mentioned was depreciation. And if you don't, I would say, and you would probably echo this because you, you were talking about it, is if you've got a CPA who knows what he or she is doing, that depreciation can figure out ways to legally save you a lot of money that you otherwise wouldn't be paying taxes on, 30 to 40% taxes on. And then you mentioned uh, the other thing was cost segregation. And, I, I, and you know, I, I was an entrepreneur, um, golly, how many years was I in entrepreneurship and business ownership before I realized that was even a thing? And then once you realize, like, oh, my gosh, there's so much money still available that we don't have to send to the government that we can keep legally under their rules. So, so, so everybody go look that up. Go look up depreciation. Go look up cost segregation. Go look, look R&D tax credits. Those are, those are three good ways to save a lot of money on That's taxes. right. And, you know, also charitable contributions, right? I mean, we, we, Meg and I, think it's really important to donate money. And uh, we have done that, I would say, uh, you know, very consistently for a long time in good years and bad years. And we, you know, you can accumulate and continue to roll those forward. 
uh, if you can't use them all, but that's great. You know, that's a great way to save money on taxes. It's like you want to give money to a charity or you want to pay uncle Sam. I'd much rather give just a bunch more to charity and save the tax, you know, save the taxes there. Are you familiar with donor advised funds? Do you, do you use a those? little bit. I haven't had to use those yet. But it's on my radar. Yeah, those are, and I'll, I'll give just a brief sn snippet. I, I was introduced to that through a friend of mine who's also an entrepreneur here in Nashville. And uh, he mentioned it to me. And at first I was like, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. So then I went to a finance investment guy and said, tell me about this. And so the concept is a donor advised fund is you can set this up through, you know, the Charles Schwab's and the Raymond James of the world. And they take, you, you can deposit or yeah, yeah, I guess a depositor slash invest your charitable contribution directly into the fund and at that deposit you get 100% charitable contribution tax deduction. So if you have a $100,000 windfall then you like I don't I'm not going to give this to my church. I don't want to write a check to the Red Cross just yet. I don't know who I want to give it to. You could put it in the donor advice fund and then later you can distribute it directly to the 501c3 and you get the deduction immediately. Now the other part the cool part of that is is that it grows as an investment as it's in the donor advised fund the whole time that's in there. So you could leave it in there in perpetuity. You got the credit, you got the deduction the day you put it in and you can distribute it at any time. So we do that. My wife and I, we set one up a long time ago. And so there's a, there's a charity that we like to support for their annual events every year. And they'll call and say, Hey, can you support us on our event? Sure. And I just log into my Charles Schwab account and I send my donation directly through that. And it comes from, I named the charitable fund, something that nobody could ever track back to me. That, that was just my own personal thing, but that way I can send it and I can just say, Hey, when you get the check from this fund, that's me. But then I could do it anonymously so that nobody's calling me up and asking me for donations. That's awesome. <laughs> because when people, you and I get in our positions, a lot of times people, we do get those calls. Hey, you know, we're raising money and you can get those money raising calls, fundraising calls all the time. If they know that you're a wealthy guy giving away money. So if you do the charitable fund, if you name it right, nobody will know it's you. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's one little way to do it. So I love the, I love the little detour on the tax. Thing. I, I could talk about this stuff all day, but you know, I think like what I would leave somebody with for advice would be, you know, you think about a sports team, like you're not the quarterback only. You are the quarterback, but you're also the offensive coordinator, the defensive coordinator, and the head coach. And if you think that your CPA is going to be a coach, he's not. He's like your running back. He's got to be told what to do. Yeah. And so if you're relying on, and it's the same thing for your attorney. You know, he's, again, I'm not like a great, I'm not like a huge football guy. I just know the basics. Uh, but, you know, I'm not a huge sports fan. Too busy working. Uh, but, um, you know, all these people are on, on the field are your team, you know, your teammates. And you're the, you have got to call the plays. And if you think your attorney or your CPA or your financial advisor is going gonna, is gonna to tell you how to maximize your, you know, your invested dollars every year in your business and he's going to help you minimize your tax, you're dreaming. You've got to tell your CPA what's up. Yeah. And you have to know, not more than him or her, but you have to know, you, you have to get educated. Yeah. Because they'll miss stuff. You know, you, a lot of CPAs don't know about the R&D credit. I mean, they may not ask you to look at their, you know, whole, uh, oh, are you eligible for a cost segregation this year? Or, hey, have you maximized your charitable contributions? Or, hey, one, another thing that we've done, so last tax tip, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> We set up a pension plan and um, profit sharing plan for the company. You can pour tons of money in your in your 401k retirement accounts, basically. If you're an entrepreneur, you, I mean, you can do hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, whereas an employee might be limited to their 401k, which is like 19 grand. So anyway, there's so many things you can do if you get educated on it. Yeah, I think that I think the takeaway from all this, Stephen, is that that there are plenty of resources, just like the show. I mean, we just gave some resources really quickly here on the show, but there are resources in YouTube and you can put search on the internet and find resources for tax, tax help for entrepreneurs and business owners, which leads me to the third step of what you talked about. You, you, you did start up, which is hard. You did turn around, which is less hard, but still hard. And you've also done purchasing of successful businesses. So what, like, tell us about that and how that plays into your success as an entrepreneur. So I think, uh, I think having, 
you know, a lot of different sort of diversified business experience puts you in a position where you have the confidence to go in and maybe get into a new industry like healthcare, which I didn't know a lot about. But I built a whole team around me that knows a lot about healthcare, right? And so we started this company called Healthcare Business Resources, where we're buying essentially technology companies inside of healthcare and buying revenue cycle companies, which are companies that do billing and coding and claim submission for hospitals and so forth. And so we, we've started all of that um, the last two years doing that. We've done two acquisitions. We're getting ready to do a third. Um, so, but I think, I think the key to that and why it can make you more successful is because taking a $2 million company and turning it into a $5 million company might be as much work as getting to 200,000 in revenue from zero. Right. So, and the numbers are just bigger. And so I think you, you got to play a big enough game as an entrepreneur in order to attract a high level of people around you to get them excited and interested in what you're doing. And, you know, I, I mean, I could talk, you know, talk your ear off about what we've done wrong and all the mistakes we made and all the good things we've figured out along the way. But like, Building a team around you, like an advisory board, is so important. Like, no company is too small to have a, a competent advisory board of really successful people. There are so many people that want to help you. You just have to ask. And these don't have to be people in your network. You can go on LinkedIn and find out, okay, who's the guy who's now retired or the, the lady who's now retired who, you know, built up a successful consulting business like I want to build and has done it before and is now sitting around like doesn't want to play any more golf uh does, doesn't want to spend any more time with her grandkids like you know she wants to do something she wants to stay active and busy and engaged and you come along you know interested excited eager willing to you know learn humble grateful and you know you get like some killer free advice and and then you give them equity in your deal or you give them some ability to participate in some way or there's always a way to loop somebody in to make it worth their time so your your company with the healthcare the healthcare business resources you've been doing that for a couple of years mm -hmm. but that's going public so that's a whole nother level of entrepreneurship where you're going from just private startup private turnaround private buy of a successful company now you're dealing with public how does how does that how does that differ from your private stuff? Well, it's go big or go home, right? Like <laughs> play big game. You just said that, right? You got to keep pushing the envelope. You know, the more success you have, the more success you want. And not in a bad way, not in like, oh, a trap. Like, oh, I want a house. Now I need to have a bigger house. Now I got to have a bigger house. I got to buy a boat. Okay, now I need a bigger boat. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your ability to contribute and help people and make a positive impact in other people's lives increases as your success increases, period. Like we live in a planet where you need money to do pretty much anything. You wanna help you know, your family, you wanna help your charity, you wanna help you know, whatever. You, you wanna live in a nice, nicer home or a nicer neighborhood. Everything takes money. So I think playing a bigger game is a, uh, is a, I guess, uh, an obligation that we have. If you have the potential, then you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the world to you know, live up to your potential. And I feel like I have the potential to be a public company CEO, you know, running a $500 million you know, revenue cycle healthcare conglomerate. And, and all the cool, exciting opportunities that come come with that. How I know it's different, but how different is that versus running a two hundred million dollar private company? What what what, you, what is your experience to know the difference between those two? Well, I, I can't say I know the difference yet because we're not that big. <laughs> uh, you know, we're we're still small. We're still in the early stages of what we're doing with this particular company. But um, you know, everything's new and unique, and I think entrepreneurs are used to everything being new and different and scary and challenging. I've basically made it a policy to reinvent myself every five years. And uh, that's really scary. You make a lot of mistakes. You have to eat a lot of humble pie. Um, 
And so it's tough. But what we're doing now has the potential to get a lot bigger, a lot faster, and already, and the kinds of people that you can pull in, it's just a higher caliber quality of teammate. Like you want to play high school ball or you want to play in the NFL? Like going back to our continuing our football analogy, right? Okay, I, I, I scored a couple touchdowns playing high school ball, then I played college ball and I did okay. I want to, I want to play in the, in, in the big show. You know, I want to I wanna see if I can, you know, do what Tom Brady does. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to be probably Tom Brady. But <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it a shot. Well, so what is your definition of success then? What do you, what, how do you define that? I mean, I think it's very easy to define success. It's, it's growth. It's, live, it's, it's finding and exploring your potential. It's a, a level of financial stability that whatever that is for you, maybe you have a real high cost of living and big aspirations, live in a big house or fly in a private plane or whatever, or maybe it's just peace of mind. But for, for me, it's being uh, unkillable financially, like being so solid financially that you could literally just never work again a day in your life and not have to be on the rat race of you know, trying to make money. And believe me, there's plenty of people with plenty of big houses and yachts and, you know, planes who are literally living paycheck to paycheck, right? So I think financial sustainability is success. Um, I couldn't teach financial literacy with a, with a straight face and have a financial literacy company if I wasn't, you know, semi-responsible with our own finances. So at the personal, at the personal household level, I think it's being conservative with your finances. But then, um, at the company level, you got to go. You got to play all out. Mm -hmm. You know, so leverage in the business, but not leverage in the home. So, what, so with that as a backdrop of your definition for success, do you consider yourself to be successful? I do. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to be more successful. I'm never satisfied. I think, you know, I, I love people like Grant Cardone who are always talking about, you know, pushing yourself to the next level, uh, trying to do more, trying to think bigger. You know, there's, there's great people out there that, like yourself, you know, that inspire people to do more and be more. Um, so I think it's great. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate your perspective on that because I ask those two questions of every guest, you know, what's your definition of success? And then followed up with, you know, do you consider yourself successful? And it's interesting, the answers that I get, they all are circling the same universe, but they all come from different perspectives. And that's why I ask because I love your perspective about success grows. So you can, you know, create the public company, right? Okay, so you create a public company. All right, that's successful. But now I want it to be bigger. I want it to be a bigger. I want it to be bigger. I want it to be bigger. Yeah, I mean, I'm already thinking about, okay, well, I exit from this public company. You know, I pull whatever, $40, $50 million off the table. Then I go and I start becoming an activist investor. Then I start acquiring, you know, busted public companies and then, you know, figuring out how to turn those around. I mean... The game can just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, you oh. know, and so um, I think that's, but, you know, everybody wants different things, you yeah. know, and you don't have to have, want that. Right. Well, your, so your story and, and your wife's story, Meg, who was on, who's on the show earlier, both of you are super successful from the outside perspective. Both of you consider yourselves successful internally. But appropriately so, not in a not a braggadocious or egocentric way, but in a in an appropriately humble way. That Meg, Meg likes to say we're quote horribly ambitious, <laughs> both of us, like like unsatisfied, you know, grateful but unsatisfied, you know, hungry, appreciative but hungry. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I love that, and I think that your stories, just like every other successful entrepreneur who sits across from me on the show they all use the same five keys to unlock that success. And this is kind of what I want to dive into right now is that the first key to success that I've found through all these interviews I've ever done is that of passion. And there's two sides of passion. There's the emotional side of passion, things you're excited about like real estate or finance, but, but there's that, that'll only take you so far. Being emotionally excited about something 
is not necessarily an indicator of success. But what is on the passion side is the willingness to suffer, which is where the word actually comes from. It means willing to suffer. Like the passion of the Christ was not about his excitement to go to the cross. It was about him being willing to do it because there was a bigger plan, a bigger mission on the backside of that. And as entrepreneurs, if we're not willing to suffer and endure for the thing that we're building, startups are hard, turnarounds are hard, buying successful companies, also hard. There's levels of hard. But if you're not willing to push through, you can't make it. So where did passion play into your story of success? Um, that is a great, by the way, that, that's fantastic, Jason. I know you've said that before, but it bears repeating. And it's so true. You know, if, if you don't have thick skin when you start, you will when you end or you just won't make it, you yeah. know? And so you said, where does my passion come yeah, from? I mean, like where, where is it? Like, have, Give me a story of how passion helped you push through in a tough, a tough you, time. I'll give you a great, a great example. So it's 2009. Uh, I just, uh, I had spent a year and a half trying to get my financial literacy company off the ground. I had about $80,000 saved that I was using that I thought would be more than enough to, to get my business off the ground. Burned through that in about six months. Got a loan from my parents for another 50 grand, burned through that in the next six months, uh, and then had a, um, you know, come to Jesus moment, uh, which was, what am I going to do? Like, am I, how committed am I really? Now that the money is gone, how, how prepared am I truly to suffer? And it was at that point back against the wall where I had to make a decision to, push forward into the unknown using only my credit cards to potentially figure out how to finance the next whatever stretch to get to get the company going or go back to getting a job tail between my legs $130,000 poorer a, <laughs> a complete failure uh you know going back to work for the man and that right there my necessity level went from 10 to 1000 you know, and it just, it really, it really changed. It, as they say, shit got real. <laughs> yes. And I'm with the real. That's right. Jason Duckett. So we're talking about that. So, um, yeah. So I decided in that moment, all right, I'm getting rid of my apartment. I'm going on the road and I'm going to go from school to school to school and I'm just going to, get in front of my clients and I'm going to sell as hard as I can and try to convince people that this financial literacy program is good. I had two clients at the time, not nowhere near enough to justify a business. And I spent 14 months on the road, 14 months crashing at my parents' house from time to time, friend's house, a girlfriend that I was on and off again who kind of got sick of having me around. I went to and visited 80 schools in 14 months all across the United States. And I just delivered a ton of value. I didn't sell, meaning showing up, hey, I want you guys to buy my program. I showed up giving value. I said, hey, I want to come to your school and do a free presentation for all your students and show you how great our curriculum is. And I did that for about five months before I got a phone call from from the head person at Paul Mitchell who was like, uh, you're just going around to all the schools for free and doing these great presentations that everybody's raving about and you're not charging anybody for anything and you're flying out there on your own dime and you're, you're you know, not charging anything to do these presentations. Hotel, you know, airfare, everything, transportation, and you're just, you're just doing that for our schools. I want, I want you guys, I want to show everybody how great this is. Company went like that. It took 14 months. We turned, we turned that into a $800,000 a year recurring revenue business with about a 50% profit margin um, in, you know, over the next two years following wow. that 14 months. And that set up my entire next decade, that business. Set up my whole, whole decade. Because without that, without that money, I couldn't have financed this or done that or invested in the real estate stuff or any of it. So passion, man, 
pushing through pushing through and i mean i was i felt hypocritical because i was living on my credit cards and i was eyeballs you know eyeballs deep in debt and it still wasn't happening because it wasn't right away it wasn't like okay i made the decision to just go for it and a month later things started turning around no it took like 10 months for it to turn around wow but people notice you know people the right people will notice if you're actually creating value and doing something that people need and want you know that phone call from paul mitchell changed my entrepreneurial life because they they put me in front of the rest of the schools and then that led to one thing which led to another thing which led to another thing and so you know we we were just i was just lucky and fortunate but i paid the price harder you work the luckier you get man that's right luck luck is only gives goes to the hard workers man it's created it is created well so i love thank you for telling that story so passion first key to success the second two kind of go together, and you you just mentioned them, uh, uh, even though you may not have meant to, but being in the right place, right time, and knowing the right people. I think every story of success for entrepreneurs, they can point to place and time. That that was the spot that, boom, like your wife's story of jogging the neighborhood and running into that guy was right place, right time, and right person, all kind of wrapped up, and her first investor. So who, where, where was your right place, right time, and who was your right person or person's that helped catapult you into success. I think it would be that that Paul Mitchell, you know, contract and sort of breaking through toward profitability on that, and then that setting up the stage for creating the cash flow and freedom to do other things. And then the fourth P is preparation. It's the know-how to pull it off. And I think that your story illustrates that everything you did from USC doing the the finance, international relations, and all that all the way to today has prepared you to be the CEO of a public company. Am I, am I reading that right? Completely. And so it wasn't a linear, got to get a college degree, got to go get 20 years in the corporate America, then I'm ready to go do something. It was this ping pong experience of up and down, back and forth, that really prepared you to be the CEO of a public company. Yeah, I think, I think that's 100% true. But I, I also believe that I've put in, you know, probably 5,000 hours of just trying to educate myself on things. I mean, I don't just try to learn by figuring it out. I'll, you know, research, I'll listen to blogs. I mean, I had to learn how to market my company. Well, then I spent, you know, a year and a half trying to learn marketing in, you know, from 2008 to 2009. Now, those skills I learned didn't necessarily immediately pay off for that business, but that diligence of effort to learn marketing has shaped decisions that I've made along the way, and I'm I'm knowledgeable enough in the subject of marketing to make good decisions. Same thing for finance. Same thing for you know doing acquisitions. Or you know I studied all kinds of materials. I did courses in real estate before that. So you can't underestimate the importance of preparation. Like that, preparation and hard work is just everything well that's the hardest one i mean if you look at passion you either have it or you don't uh being right place right time and knowing the right people that's either going to happen or it isn't you have to put yourself in those places it doesn't happen by luck but out of the five p's the preparation is the hardest one it's the one you've got to you've got to figure it out like i'm not prepared to go start a biochemical engineering company i don't have the i don't have the know-how to do that yet it would take me time to prepare for success in that field so entrepreneurs who have these great ideas, I, I, I get this call frequently. Guys, somebody will call me and say, hey, Jason, I know you coach people. I got one idea I want to pay. You think it'll work? I'm like, the idea is fantastic, but it's not executable because you do not have the preparation. You don't have the 5,000 hours. You don't have the 10,000 hours. Go pick something else. Design T-shirts. Like, do something easy that's executable because you couldn't be in the healthcare space today had you not had all these other dozens of years of preparation for that. I mean, yeah, I totally agree. And also more importantly, I think learning what you're good at and what you're not good yeah. at. Cause that's what the road really teaches you. The entrepreneurial journey teaches you where can you really add value and where should you be staying as far away from things that you don't, you don't ruin it all. Well, the last P is plan. And by plan, I don't mean written business plan. I mean, what's your plan to finance your venture? And I loved your story because you were living off credit cards and you got rid of your apartment and you're essentially homeless, living around the nation, going and financing your opportunity to get the school going for dollar camp, which catapulted you into the, all the other opportunities. While not a recommended way to do it, it does work. 
for some, for some it doesn't. I had a guy on a show, um, when was it? I guess I, I don't remember if his episode was released yet, but he talked about how he couldn't get a loan to start the company that he wanted, so he went and got a student loan because they'd give him student loan and use the student loan. Again, not recommended, <laughs> but the way that he, way he did it. So is there another way that you financed the things that you're doing that we haven't kind of uncovered that would be interesting to the listeners? I mean, I think investors are a great way. Partners are a great way. Uh, a lot of, I'd say, new entrepreneurs think that they got to own 100% of it and somebody comes in because they've watched too many episodes of Shark Tank, <laughs> you know, and somebody wants to offer them 10, yeah, 50 grand for 20% of their company. Like, oh, I would never sell my company for that. It's like, dude, you're missing the point, man. You need, you need to just get off of zero. You need to get going. You need to... Don't try to get rich off of one idea, one product, one company, one, you know, like it's a long game for most people. I mean, the number of people that do one entrepreneurial business and sell it for a hundred million dollars and they do it in five to seven years is so, so, so small. The majority of successful people are, they take a life, a lifetime to build their dream and it's a series of projects and steps and one business fails and the next one is good and then the next one fails and the next one's great you know so i think there's too much emphasis on i gotta own 100 percent of this thing I, I can't i gotta hoard it it's, it's scarcity mindset abundance mindset is bring in partners bring in advisors share the wealth make the make the bonfire so big that everybody wants to come to, to your party and, and, and feel the heat of, of what you're doing. Man, that's uh, timely advice. I, I, I needed to hear that. So thank you for that. Because I, I know that there are people listening that also need it. I want to ask you an advice question. We've got, I've got two questions left to finish up our conversation. The first one is for, for somebody who's sitting and listening right now who hasn't started yet or is at the very early stages, they're like you at Dollar Camp and they don't know how the hell they're going to make this thing work. They're not sure what's going to happen. What advice would you as a successful entrepreneur give that person right now? So the advice I would give to a brand new entrepreneur, someone thinking about being an entrepreneur is figure out where you are in your career and in your life journey too, because if you're young, that's that you have a whole different risk profile than if you're, you know, middle age and you have a, a, a spouse and kids or you know, or are you later in your career, you've already had maybe a bunch of jobs and you've got some savings and now you've got, you know, 401k that you're thinking about using to start a business or buy a business. Like that matters a lot. And people do not talk about that enough about how much that actually matters. Cause that, how much risk you can take is going to determine whether you should do a risky venture with huge upside or whether you should buy a business or a franchise and just become a business owner instead of an entrepreneur that's starting something from scratch. Um, so I, I would say that's the best advice is just really be honest about how much risk you can take, how much are you willing to lay on the line and, and how much pain are you willing to take? How much passion to your point do you really have? How much suffering are you willing to engage in? So what other, is there any other parting advice or comments you want to make to the listeners about your journey as a successful entrepreneur? I would say the faster you can figure out what you're actually good at and what you're not good at is, is the faster you're gonna be successful. Yeah. And I'd say I spent too much time doing operations, being involved in the weeds of, of the businesses and not thinking big enough. So I would say you, you should start bigger than you think. Like if you're gonna buy a, a company, buy a bigger company, bring on partners and investors and build, hire a good CEO. And, and it's just as much work and time to do a big deal as it is a small deal. That's the best advice that I wish I'd had, you know, five, seven years ago. Uh, I wouldn't replace the entrepreneurial journey that I've had, but I could have saved a lot of suffering and been a, a little <laughs> farther ahead uh, had, I, had I known that, you know, magic, like just do bigger deals. I love it. I, well, I think that's good parting advice is, is the do, play a bigger game. You said that earlier. And I think that may be kind of the theme of the podcast is, this episode is play the bigger game than you think you're ready for because there's a bigger payoff. You gotta make it smart. You gotta make sure you know what you're good at. But I appreciate you being on the show. This has been a fantastic conversation. 
I know that, that the people who are listening lo- are, are resonating with what you're talking about. So thank you. I, I'm honored that you're on the show and I've got the power couple, entrepreneur power couple. I've got both of you guys now on the show, Meg and Stephen Epstein. So Stephen, thank you. Thank you for being Jason, here. Jason, it's an honor to be on your show and thanks for helping everyone who you're, who you're reaching with your message. It's so important what you're doing and you're just such a great guy that I, I just like being a friend of yours and, uh, Thank you for having me on the show. Well, thank you. Well, there you have it, everybody. We we every week talk with somebody just like Stephen and his wife, Meg, who came on before him, um, about how they got to success. And every single time, these five keys they talk about, passion, place, people, preparation, and plan, they play into every successful entrepreneur's story. And the funny thing about keys is that if you have the key, it unlocks the door every single time. So if you want to be successful as an entrepreneur, you've got to figure out how to apply and use those five keys as well. And I've done something for you. I've created a free assessment on these five keys that you can take free at my website at therealjasonduncan.com slash success. It's a 17 question assessment that goes through the five keys based on the venture that you're hoping to do on your own. And it just kind of gives you an analysis and a a predicted model of, yes, you can be successful at this or no, you might want to choose something else. So go to therealjasonduncan.com slash success. You can take that free success assessment completely free. You get the report almost immediately in your email that analyzes what you, what your probability of success is. But thank you for listening. Thank you for being here as a part of the show. Again, please subscribe to this podcast. Thank you to C-Suite Radio Network for the syndication. And go look at us on YouTube because this room is great. you got to see where we're at if you're not watching this. But thanks again to Stephen Epstein for being my guest today on the show. Next week, we'll talk to yet another amazingly successful entrepreneur on how he or she built an incredible company. And until then, I'm the real Jason Duncan, and Jesus is King. Thank you for listening to another edition of The Root of All Success with The Real Jason Duncan. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, we invite you to visit therootofallsuccess.com to access the show notes and other helpful resources. Take charge of your business. Grow it from great to incredible. Join us again next time here on The Root of All Success. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.